So, how's everybody doing? Great. Good? If you had to, like, rank your week out of six, just shout out numbers. Six. Six? That's pretty good. Nine? Wow. Four? Well, I would put my week a solid, strong one, (laughs) 1. 1.6, 1.7, something in around there. It was not a great week. Um, And I'm going to talk all about that today, which is so exciting. So... I, uh, the title for my conversation with you guys today is What If You Knew? Um, and I have a tagline, and Sarah was like, why do you have a tagline? Like, no one's going to know. I was like, oh, I'm going to know because I'm going to tell them because I'm proud of it. So the tagline is exploring a life of shame, a really crappy week, and a moment of pure grace. So this week was one of those strange sort of weeks when um, things look good on the outside. Like on paper, I should be great. I had, um, there's camp week at a Lower Road Christian Fellowship, which is a church that planted New Life Fellowship. So John Lynch was there speaking. So um, some amazing teaching there. I had some incredible business opportunities, amazing business growth that happened. Um, I got to hang out with friends. But man, <laughs> um, despite all of that, Things were just like grinding, grinding away on the inside. There was like this pressure building up. And it all, um, it came to a head. I developed a massive migraine and uh, it totally shut down a bunch of stuff that was going on. I had like a bunch of business, uh, big client deadlines this past week that I missed um, because of this migraine. And in the midst of that, I found myself in this odd really uncomfortable dialogue, I'll call it that, uh, with Father. And he walked me through memories in my life. And it was like, he's like, Josh, let's go for a walk. And we walked through the years, and we stopped from one embarrassing memory to the next. Shame after shame after shame. And each one, he showed me that damage that I suffered and damage that I received in those moments cut me really deeply. Like, cut by cut, blow by blow, until my sense of myself, my sense of who I was, was just twisted. It was just stunted far beyond any recognition. And I found myself feeling so much shame, like, wow, like, what if people knew? What if people knew that was the real me? Like, what if people, I can't let this get out. No one can find out that this is who I truly am. If if you knew, oh, what would you do? I, I can't even begin to imagine it, so I'm not going to let it happen. I will not let that happen. And so through my life, I've developed tools, tools to, um, to help protect myself, patterns of behavior that uh, protected me, prevented me from experiencing any, any further shame, any further damage. But true to his nature as a, as a loving, kind, sympathetic compassionate father, God stepped into each of those moments. And through all of them, he reminded me of some beautiful truths um, of this journey, this life that all of us are walking on. So that's what I get to talk with you guys about. 
some of it I'm super pumped about, but some of it I'm like, yeah, I'm not really excited to, sh to share with you about my lifetime of shame. This is not going to be fun, but it's going to be good. I really think it's going to be good. So um, that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to walk through my crappy week and my lifetime of shame, and then we're going to land up on some beautiful, well, I hope they're beautiful for you, uh, moments of grace. And the goal here is realizing that, like, what happened to me this week, that's, that's for all of us. Like, there's that invitation that God wants to give each one of us, turning that, oh, what if people knew what was true about me? But knowing that God is whispering the exact same thing in your ear. Josh, what if you knew what was true about you? And what if you knew what was true about me? And what if you knew what was true about how much I deeply, deeply love you? So that's what we're off to today. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll jump in. Father, I think you've got something special. Um, it's been a crazy, insane week, and you have been with me through every moment, and it's been difficult and hard and weirdly fulfilling and not at all fun, um, but there's purpose for it. You've purposed every moment of it, and so, Father, you're up here with me, and I pray that you'd make it easy for people to engage with you and I as we're dialoguing through all this stuff, so, amen. All right, so, my really crappy week actually started way back in October of 2018. 18. So that's what, like nine months? <laughs> We're going to go through every single day. So I don't know if you had plans this afternoon, but you know, God doesn't respect our schedules. So, <laughs> so October, I was at a crossroads in my business. I was self-employed. I'd been struggling and struggling and struggling. And I had a conversation with a close friend, Greg Ballard, who's not here to support me. I'm really upset. Uh, and I remember saying to Greg, like, listen, man, it's all or nothing right now. Either this next thing I'm trying, either it works or I'm thrown in the towel and I'm going to find a job or something. Well, something worked because over the next seven or eight weeks, um, four clients closed big deals with me and I was completely slammed for six, the first, I knew for the first six months of 2019, I'll be completely slammed and I had other clients with work stretching right to the end of 2019. And the total value of all those projects was over five times what I had made the previous year. Now, bear in mind, the bar was super low. So, I mean, it's not like it was piles and piles of money, but it was like more than I'd ever thought would say, this is my gross income. Um, I realized really quickly that I needed to hire employees to help me with this. And so I did. Really amazing people, fantastic hearts. God brought me exactly the right people at exactly the right time. And it was very, very exciting. It was so exciting, I didn't notice the weight that was starting to creep in, into my heart. Um, looking back, I can see it really clearly, but there are seeds of anxiety and worry that were planted and began to sprout over the next months. So fast forward a couple months, May, June-ish, and I'm hiring employees number three and four, and I'm very excited, but again, an increasing sense of gravity. These are crucial hires, and I'm confident that God's brought these people along but in order to bring them on board, I had to choose to take a bunch of my profit and a significant chunk of my personal pay to commit to them. And it had to be done. I knew it without a shadow of a doubt. I knew God was going to provide, but it had to be done. And I began to realize that my role was changing. I'm now leader of a business. I have employees. And I start to feel the weight even more significantly. Um, operating a business with employees and payroll and budgets and cash flow is a lot different and a lot harder than just being a one-man show. This brings us to just a couple weeks ago. 
So Friday last week? Doesn't really matter that much. Friday afternoon, um, Sarah and I are working on getting together camping items because we're going to go camp at a lower road Christian fellowship for their weekly or their yearly camp week, summer celebration. And we thought, hey, we don't have much going on in our lives. Let's take our five children at the age of 10 and live in a tent really close by to a whole bunch of other people. That sounds like fun and not living in a fishbowl at all. So we did. And uh, I knew it was going to be a bit of a dicey week. There were some big deadlines, like I mentioned. Um, I had volunteered to be a VBS teacher for one of the days. I knew I'd been slated to preach today. Uh, I had lots and lots of stuff in my mind. So then on on Friday, I got a phone call um, and found out there's a prominent author with lots of best-selling books and a very significant online following who had been hearing about me and my business through friends of his for a while and wanted to meet with me to talk to see if there's a way I could help him in his business. Um, The guy was my ideal dream client. So we set up a time to meet Monday afternoon. Now at this point, my mind is beginning to boil and I feel this strange pressure beginning to build up inside and it's pretty hot, pretty hot week. I can feel, so I'm talking to to the heat. I'm talking to my kids behaving like children, not like adults, because that would be really convenient if they would take care of themselves a little better. So we're all setting up the camp um, actually at the church and then my uncle comes by and I, Spent a few summers working with him framing, and every time we talk, he always brings up the same stories. Hey, you remember your first day of work? You got sunstroke and threw up everywhere? There's more, and they're just as embarrassing and fantastic as that one is. Um, and they all feature me messing up. They all feature me making mistakes. And, and suddenly, this 34-year-old business owner with children becomes a 19-year-old, just full of shame and feeling so much pressure to perform. Um, shame surged high and I ended the conversation as as gracefully as I could over the next few days the inner pressure only increased and as long as other people were around I was okay I hung out with friends uh, lots of great late night conversations but if I was alone the pressure was right there and I found myself praying a lot kind of Uh, I didn't use lots of words some words I can't say because this is being recorded Uh, a lot of oh God, I don't, I don't know what's going on. There are even some groans without words. Um, the big meeting on Monday came up. It went amazingly well, far better than I could have asked for. There's some incredible potential there. But the weird thing is, afterwards, I, I felt more off. I remember uh, sitting and chatting with Sarah about it, and we were talking, debriefing. I was like, babe, I just feel, I don't know, like, I feel like I need a really good cry or something. And if you guys know me at all, you know that I'm, 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 I'm a big softy. I cry more than I consider to be a manly amount. And so this is Tuesday, and I know I'm preaching on Sunday, and I have no clue what I'm going to share about. All I have is this phrase, what if you knew? That's all that I have. I'm also supposed to teach on VBS. Wednesday's crazy at work. It's a scorcher outside. I have four back-to-back meetings in the morning, and then I whisk the kids off, off to some, a friend's pool, And we get pizza, go home. By the time the kids are all in bed, um, I can feel migraine coming on. Sarah and I had already planned for her to spend the night away because I knew that she was pretty exhausted from watching the kids while I was working um, and stuff. I'm a great husband. So she took off, and I just, why are you laughing? (laughs) So I fell into bed, totally exhausted. And then I woke up at at midnight, and my migraine had hit full force, and totally out of meds, and I feel more and more off. 
Something doesn't feel right at all, and I can't remember feeling this way ever. I've had migraines before, I've been stressed out before, but I'd never felt this way. So in the middle of the night, I called Sarah, and I said, babe, I feel really, really horrible right now. And as I was talking, I just heard this word in my mind. It's like, you should not be alone right now. And I was like, that's, that's garbage. But I was like, babe, I don't think I should be alone right now. And as soon as I said that, I just broke down. And I didn't know why I was crying. I didn't know where the emotions were coming from. I felt so conflicted. And I felt so confused. I did not know what was going on. Sarah probably was a little freaked out. Um, although me crying, again, isn't that uncommon. But... Um, she got home and I clung to her and I sobbed and I threw up and I cried more and then I'd calm down a bit and then new waves of emotion would just crash over me. So I canceled Thursday, uh, backed out of EBS, uh, canceled client meetings and I stayed home alone in the cool dark of our basement. And over the next 24 hours or so, old memories began to surface. Some were funny, but most were a bit painful, and I suspected that Father had a hand in it, so I confronted him about this, and he invited me on a journey into my past. He had some things to show me, and one of the first memories that came up was me at about six or seven years old. My family had taken us out to a riding camp. Um, there were only a few children in our family at the time, so my parents could afford to take us out and do fun things. So... I'm the second oldest of nine, so that fun stuff stopped right around when Michael was born, I think, so it's, it's his fault. Um, <laughs> I hope he didn't listen to this. Um, six or seven years old, and it had been a great day of riding, and we were in like the sort of the big lounge area in the bunkhouse, and I don't remember very much. I remember my mom and dad were working on like some paper models or something like that, and like all of us were around, and there were some like the ranch hands where people were hanging out. I remember this man was talking to my parents. He's like, hey, is that your boy? Pointing to me. And they're like, yeah, that's Josh. He's like, awesome. And he reached over and slapped my butt. He's like, he's got some big back bumpers there, doesn't he? And I didn't understand what that meant. I literally didn't know what that meant. Um, I just remember feeling shame. That was like the first time in my life I ever remember being really self-conscious. I thought it had something to do with my body, but I wasn't sure. Grade one, uh, my dad loved to play chess, and he played it with a couple friends, and so I was like, I want to learn to play chess. It looks so... I didn't actually think this. I didn't have the, the capacity to enunciate these things at the time. It wasn't, my vocabulary was very small. But I remember thinking, like, Dad looks so cool sitting there pondering and moving pieces, and then, you know, I, I want to do that. So I found a book about chess, and I picked it up and started reading it, and I challenged my older sister to a game of chess, and um, I basically only knew how to move the pieces. And so my mom watch, walks by, and she sees us playing, and she stops for a second, and she's watching my sister just systematically take all of my pieces off the board. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have, no, I have no, no clue what's going on. And she says, Josh, you are a really impetuous chess player, and I have no idea at the time what impetuous meant, but I knew probably wasn't good, and I felt shame. Grade three, um, I went to a small private, uh, private school. My dad was the principal, um, and um, so that didn't really do me many favors in, in school. 
I remember coming in after recess time into a long hallway, and in my little seven or eight-year-old mind, I can, I, it's a long, dark hallway full of kids. The whole school was like 50 kids, so it couldn't have been that full or that long or that dark, but in my memory it was. And uh, the way that we, we would come in is the, the small kids would line up first and the big kids would line up behind them. They'd kind of all make their way, you know, orderly, uh, in quotes, into the door. But then kind of once you're through the door, it was like every man for himself. You just like rush to your, rush to your hooks. So um, a bunch of bigger kids were coming behind me and they shoved me down. And one of the older boys said, get out of the way, fatty. Um, they were a big reason why I hated school. They'd, you know, push me and trip me and make crude jokes and spit on me from time to time. Shame over and over again. Grade six, I got older and those tormenting boys had graduated out of school by that point, and so my life was a little easier. Um, and then one day, again, grade six age, I was, uh, I'd come in from recess early, and so there's me and another girl who remained nameless at this point, and we were just hanging out and chatting, and then I noticed that my, my friend Rachel Grasscamp, she had left a pile of cookies in her desk, and I swear it was this other girl's idea. I don't remember for sure, but it probably was, because I would never have decided it was a good idea to eat the cookies. But we did. We took the cookies and ate them. And then after recess, all the kids come in. There's a hubbub of getting into your desk, and everyone's chatting. It's before, anything, like, before the class has really started. And then Rachel's like, hey, Mr. D, where are my, my cookies are gone? It's like, like, the world slowed. Like, time just slowed down. Everything went silent, and my physiological systems completely betrayed me. My, I'm, I couldn't breathe past here. My hands started going numb. I just felt my, my face going this, this crimson shade of embarrassment. And my teacher was not blind. And he looked at me. <laughs> he said, Josh, did you take them? Busted. In that moment, I remember taking some small solace in the fact that I did not betray my classmate. But not anymore. Candace Boyle, I am done carrying your dark secret. <laughs> Grade seven. Um, the school that I went to is located out in the country, and there's a, a big uh, field behind it and a, and a great big bush. And so every fall, the Christian School Association that we were part of would host uh, a meet, like a cross-country meet. So there'd be hundreds of kids from you know, hours around would come to our school and, and uh, the custodian would, you know, um, carve um, big pathways through the bush for a cross-country meet. And we, uh, our school was pretty small, and so we didn't have a lot of uh, people to run, so everyone had to run. It was mandatory, and I despised, I despised it. I hated that churning feeling in my stomach um, at the starting line. I hated that cracking jolt of the starting gun. I hated the inevitable pain and dragging cramps in my lungs that inevitably would set in. And one year in grade seven, I decided I was done. So a third of the way through the race, I waited until I was close to some adult volunteers stationed along the, tra the track, and I let myself stumble a little bit. And then I grabbed at my right leg, and then I think I played it up pretty good. I was pretty smart about it. I didn't stop. I knew that they saw. They're like, oh, Josh, are you okay? But I pretended I didn't hear them, and I kept running. And then just a little bit further down the trail was another, uh, another set of adult volunteers. And by this time, I developed quite an impressive limp. And they're like, are you okay? What happened? It's like, I fell and I hurt my leg. And like, you should probably stop the race. And I was like, oh, 
I probably should. And so they helped me. They, they, they helped me, you know, get off the track. And I limped up to the pavilion and, um, where, you know, people were hanging out. And I spent the rest of the day seated with my foot elevated and relieved to be out of the race. And something inside me changed. And I don't know totally what it was at the time. Grade nine. A few things clicked in my head. There was considerably more freedom in high school than in the small private school I'd grown up in. The teachers were a lot more lax in ensuring adherence to rules and guidelines. And I found myself with opportunities to cut corners and get away with it. I had to write a book report for English class, and I was running out of time. I'm actually a little tiny bit proud of this, but I'm also a little bit ashamed of it. I actually invented a book for a book report. <laughs> it was foolproof. How could I, like, how could I get caught? Like, it's not plagiarism, right? <laughs> Uh, my French teacher as well, Mr. Kaczorowski. He was like a Russian guy teaching French. Very strange. Um, so he had a deal in his class that if you ever got three perfect scores on unit tests, you'd automatically receive a perfect on the following unit test. You wouldn't have to take it. And I cheated my way to three perfect scores. Yeah, don't laugh. That's really bad. I can't believe you think it's funny. The next year in grade 10, I missed a deadline for a major essay. And the way, that we, the way it worked was we all had uh, assignment binders. And so you'd put your assignment in the binder, hand in the binder, the teacher would take it, mark it, give the assignment, give the binder back. So the teacher had graded all the assignments, of which I had not handed mine in, although I handed my binder in. The binder came back to me. I slipped my, finished, my now finished essay into the back. And I put my hand up and said, Miss Hill, my assignment did get graded. It's like, oh, oh, that's strange. I actually don't remember seeing yours. I was like, well, it's here in my binder. Again, I didn't technically lie because my binder, my, my essay didn't get graded. And at the time, it technically was in the folder. Um, so she took it back. And that really ate me up. I felt an incredible amount of guilt. And I lasted about 18 hours <laughs> before confessing to her. And I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, I'd grown up in like devotions, you know, like, you know, this story about this child who did this bad thing and then they, then they confessed and uh, the person was so gracious and kind. and so, I mean, I was expecting that, but she was not gracious or kind. She lit into me, uh, very disappointed in me, and she let me know it. And I felt about this tall. Um, that's an inch for those of you listening to the recording. And I can remember my face just burning as I left her office. Shame, heavy shame. Grade 10. I was in shop class. It was near the end of the year, and we're all working on our final projects. And I was waiting for my turn with the soldering iron, and I totally spaced out. Uh, just, I don't know what I was thinking about. And then uh, Adam Kent came up behind me. He was like, hey, hey buddy, you're digging for gold? And I was like, what? And then I realized I had been picking my nose. And he caught me. Silly, perhaps, but so much shame. I hope one of the things that you're seeing here is that the amount of shame you feel is not necessarily tied to the severity of the act, right? Like, I lived a pretty sheltered life. Some of you guys may have, like, far more damaging and difficult and uh, painful things in your past. But what I'm starting to learn is that it doesn't matter what you've gone through, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, it has no bearing on the degree of shame and guilt and the damage that your self-concept takes over time. Fast forward to college, perhaps the worst betrayal of my life. All of my new college friends were die-hard Flames fans, and I was a Leaf fan. 
So if this is back in the Cliff Fletcher, Brian Burke era. Uh, that year, Jason Blake led the team with 25 goals. And Vesa Toscala had 22 wins that year. We had guys like Pavel Kabina and Jamal Myers, if any Leaf fans are around. This is a, these were dark days to be a Leaf fan. Am I right? It was a dark days. And I am so, <laughs> I'm actually not that ashamed. I'm so ashamed to admit it. I actually tried to change my allegiance. I legitimately, I put my Leaf jersey away. I tried to cheer for the flames. And it was so hard. And it didn't take, but still. <laughs> yeah, I should be ashamed of that. <laughs> Second year. I cheated on a final assignment for one of my courses. We were supposed to go downtown Calgary and interview people and note, make notes of their responses right over. And I didn't feel like it, so I just made up names and responses. I got a great mark. The irony is it was for Christian ethics class. <laughs> <laughs> so Professor Brian Roller, I am so sorry. Uh, third year, Sarah was experiencing a lot of morning sickness, and she's also a hardcore procrastinator at the time, um, and so she had her final paper due for her, and I actually wrote it for her. She got an 86%, which she was very excited about, and I was very proud of her for that. <laughs> Way to go, babe. Way to go. August 2006. This is a big one. At this point, Sarah and I had been dating for about eight months, and we were talking about getting married. We've been talking about it for a while. And Sarah's mom and dad were very excited. I picked a ring. I was going to go take her up north. It was going to be fantastic. Um, two days before I was going to propose, her dad came to me, and he said, Hey, Josh, I found your internet search history. And if you ever want to make a guy throw up on the spot, tell him you found his internet search history. Uh, it conversation did not go well. Now, I'll say this. I, had, I was no stranger to conversations about this. This was something that I was in the process of dealing with. There were people in my life that I was open with. But I'd kind of become used to, like, especially today, like, if you're a guy, you're like, man, I struggle with porn. Most of the time, like 95% of the time, the other guy's like, oh, you know what? I understand. You get it. Like, it's, it's a really, really, really common thing. Rich was in that 5%, my father-in-law. And... <laughs> Uh, the conversation didn't go well. Long story short, he said, does Sarah know? I said, yes. He's like, well, we've decided, Deb and I have decided we are removing your blessing on the engagement. Shame. The story ends well, but at that moment, so much shame. I would say that for 95% of my life, I operated without being super aware of what I believed about me, my self-concept. I think it's kind of like background, no, background noise. It's going on. It influences everything that's happening, but I just don't see it. And as Father's walking me through all these, pain, all these uh, difficult events, I began to see in gross, sloppy, hissing green clarity what I believed was true about myself. I saw the Josh Gordon I've been desperate to keep hidden for decades, and I'd layered that guy with... with behaviors and coping mechanisms and defense tactics, anything from the world out there seeing the guy in here. What if they knew? What if they knew that I am unreliable, I'm untrustworthy, I'm not safe to be given responsibility for anything important? I am depraved and selfish and disgusting with perverted appetites. I am boring. I am uninteresting. I'm not worth knowing, let alone loving. I am lazy 
I am self-centered. I'll find, out, I'll find a way to get out of doing something the right way. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't belong with successful, content people. I'm the kind of person who fails, and I don't deserve to influence anyone. And suddenly, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed for God to see this man. Not even a man, this villain, sleazy, vindictive, lazy, selfish, greasy con man. Oh, God, that guy is gross, and I hate him so much. What if people knew? I do almost anything to keep people from figuring this out. Then Father showed me a toolbox. It was full of behavior patterns I've carefully selected and maintained over the past 34 years, and he pulled out a handful of them. Josh, you believe no one in their right mind should trust you, and so to protect yourself from that rejection... You maintain your image by cutting corners or cheating in small ways. He tossed the tool to his feet and pulled out another one. Josh, you believe you're the kind of guy who will drop the ball, most likely when it's most important. And so protect yourself from that. You look for escape in food or Netflix or pornography. Oh, he's totally right. He picks out another one. Josh. You're so terrified. Someone will discover that you're putting on an act. You keep yourself puffed up on an invisible pedestal, constantly evaluating those around you. And when you detect anyone who's competition, you find ways to eviscerate them in your mind. Man, this sucks. He grabs some more, naming them and throwing them into the growing pile at his feet. Josh, you constantly fuss over your appearance to hide your weight. This hurts but his voice is gentle and kind. Josh, you overcommit in an effort to impress people. Okay, God, to be fair, I haven't used that one in a really long time. <laughs> really, buddy? Maybe a, little bit of that going on, maybe a little bit of that going on and you're signing up for VBS? Yeah, crap. <laughs> he smiles and tosses down. Josh, you're afraid of risking in relationships, so you wait for others to initiate with you got nothing. It's like he can read me perfectly or something. Father smiles at me warm with a twinkle to his eye and he kicks the pile of tools to the side and slides closer to me and shoulders me affectionately. He throws an arm over my shoulder and we're quiet for a minute. Then he blurts out, hey man, you got a Bible lying around somewhere? The irony of his request strikes me as hilarious. Yes, I do have a Bible. He tells me to flip to Galatians 2 verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of, Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. Josh, do you see that guy? Father waves his hand, and I see me. I'm repulsive, sweaty, pallid skin, greasy, thinning hair, ill-fitting clothes, small, beady eyes. He seems nervous, twitchy. He glares at me, angry, accusing. Yeah, I see him. That's me. No way, dude, he says. That guy's dead. And in a flash... See Jesus on the cross. Shadows stretching from the base of his cross all the way to my feet. 
And Jesus cries out, it is finished. And he slumps to the side. Father's arm is still around my shoulder, and in the quiet he speaks, and his words reverberate into my depths. You were crucified with Christ. It's no longer that guy who lives. This guy here, he punches my shoulder and grabs me, grabs me a big side hug. My favorite boy. Christ lives in you. I look at you and I can't tell where you end and Jesus begins. Father points to my toolbox, reaching out with his toe to nudge the pile of tools. You don't need those, my man. The version of you you've been trying to fix and protect has been dead since the day you first trusted me. I'm wordless at this point, staring dumbfounded from the tools to his face and back to the tools. So if the old me is dead, and I don't need to hide or protect that dead me, father's nodding along with agreement as it's connecting in my mind, but I still feel like he's there. He's, he's hiding in here. I know myself. I know what I'm like. I'll forget this conversation and I'll jump right back into the old patterns of living. He laughs at me a bit then, which surprises me. A little insensitive, considering my, since my fragile emotional state at the time. Of course you will. Rome wasn't built in a day. Then he said, you know, I, I'm thinking about changing the, the phrase to creation wasn't done in a day, but we'll stick with Rome for now. It's fine. My great hope through all of this is that we work through dismantling this infrastructure of defense with you together. Father gestures to a bench and we sit down together. Josh, you are going to feel shame and you're going to feel fear. In the old, what if they knew question will be back in your mind and it will attempt to drive you back to your toolbox. But I want you to know that I'm not angry or afraid or threatened by that happening. He holds up my Bible, which is open to Galatians 2. Read verse 20 again and sub in Josh, wherever it says I or me. Josh is crucified with Christ. It's no longer Josh who lives, but Christ lives in Josh. The life with Josh now lives in the flesh. Josh lives by faith in the Son of God, who loved Josh and gave himself up for Josh. I look up, I look up at him, I think, is, is there a tear in his eye? His grin is huge, though, and something that looks like pride is just shining from his face. And he says, the life that Josh now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith. Josh, you've worked yourself into cynical exhaustion in an effort to keep others and me from confirming the lies you've believed your whole life. Then he reached down and looked in my eyes. Josh, what if you knew that I crave your trust above all else, even more than your obedience? That is how you are meant to operate, living by faith, by trust. The notion is so foreign. It, it stuns me. This can't be right. Trust even more than obedience? He twinkles at me again as though he's reading my mind. Oh yeah, he says, it's in there. Check out Hebrews eleven six. there, fella. Flip through the scriptures and dang it, he's right. Without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please the Lord. What he says next stuns me. His voice is steady and earnest. I will bend over backwards to prove to you that I'm worthy of your trust. 
I'm so eager to earn that trust for you, to prove that your heart's deepest desires, he reached out and touched me in the chest gently. Your deepest desires are safe with me. Your deepest questions, you'll find the answers in me. Josh, what if you knew how crazy I am about you? What if you knew that to the exact degree that I love and accept and am present with my son, Jesus, I love and accept and I'm present with you. Wrap your mind around that one, buddy. That was a moment of pure grace. And it's not just for me. All of us are asking, what if they knew? We have this secret person that we keep closeted away in our hearts. And we're so desperate that no one ever finds out that we build walls. But what we don't realize is that those walls prevent love from coming getting through to us. And as long as we're relying on our toolbox to protect ourselves, we're, there's a cap. There's, there's a limitation on how much of God's love we can experience. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. He, he's crazy about us. But every time I reach for a toolbox or, and grab a tool, instead of saying, Father, I'm a con man. Tell me what's true about myself. If I choose the tool... I'm choosing to not experience God's love in that moment. So what if they knew? We have to change that question. It's not, it's no longer about our hearts, our dirty, vile, disgusting hearts. Because if we're believers in Christ, that means that guy, that girl, they're dead on the cross. They're gone completely. And we rose up when Jesus rose up. We were with him in his resurrection. We've risen up pure and clean and free. We still wrestle with all the, the old programming, right? Like, it doesn't go away. But what I'm finding, and, and I think this is perhaps like the greatest victory of all, maybe, I don't know, don't quote me on that. But one of the top three victories for sure is that like the things that used to tempt me and draw me into dark depravity, those things now are like bridges to Jesus. And I can be tempted to utilize any one of the tools in my toolbox. But in that moment, when I choose to say, Father, like, you have to remind me of what's true about me right now because I don't, I don't see it. I don't feel it. And he's whispering all the time, what if you knew what was really true about you? And he's given us the Bible. He's given us community. He's given us, us friends. Like, that's what we're all doing here. We all come together in community to remind each other of what's true about God and what's true about, about me and what's true about, about the life that we're living in and how much God really, really deeply, truly loves us. I'm telling you right now that God is whispering the same words. What if you really knew Josh, Peter, Sue, Kaylee, Chris? What if you really knew what was true about you, how crazily loved you are? I long for you to trust me even more than I want you to obey me. And if you ask him, he will tell you. 